Behind the most ancient part of Holborn, London, where certain gabled houses some centuries of age still stand looking on the public way, as if disconsolately looking for the old bourne that was long run dry, is a little nook composed of two irregular quadrangles called Staple Inn. It is one of those nooks, the turning into which out of the clashing street imparts to the relieved pedestrian the sensation of having put cotton in his ears and velvet soles on his boots. It is one of those nooks where a few smoky sparrows twitter in smoky trees, as though they call to one another, Let us play at country, and where a few feet of garden mould and a few yards of gravel enable them to do that refreshing violence to their tiny understandings. Moreover, it is one of those nooks which are legal nooks, and it contains a little hall with a little lantern in its roof. To what obstructive purposes devoted, and at whose expense, this history knoweth not. In the days when Cloistrum took offence at the existence of a railroad afar off, as menacing that sensitive constitution, the property of us Britons, the odd fortune of which sacred institution is to be in exactly equal degrees, croaked about, trembled for, and boasted of whatever happens to anything anywhere in the world. In those days, no neighbouring architecture of lofty proportions had arisen to overshadow Staple Inn. The westering sun bestowed bright glances on it, and the southwest wind blew into it unimpeded. Neither wind nor sun, however, favoured Staple Inn one December afternoon towards six o'clock, when it was filled with fog, and candles shed murky and blurred rays through the windows of all its then-occupied sets of chambers. Notably from a set of chambers in a corner house in the little inner quadrangle, presenting in black and white over its ugly portal the mysterious inscription P. J. T. 1747, in which set of chambers never having troubled his head about the inscription, unless to bethink himself at odd times on glancing up at it, that haply it might mean, perhaps, John Thomas, or, perhaps, Joe Tyler, sat Mr. Grugis writing by his fire. Who could have told by looking at Mr. Grugis whether he had ever known ambition or disappointment? He had been bred to the bar, and had laid himself out for chamber practice, to draw deeds, convey the wise at call, as Pistol says, but conveyancing, and he had made such a very indifferent marriage of it that they had separated by consent, if there can be said to be a separation where there has never been coming together. No, coy conveyancing would not come to Mr. Grutus. She was wooed, not one, and they went their several ways, but an arbitration being blown towards him by some unaccountable wind, and he gaining great credit in it as one indefatigable in seeking out right and doing right, a pretty fat receivership was next blown into his pocket by a wind more traceable to its source. So, by chance, he had found his niche. Receiver and agent now to two rich estates, and deputing their legal business in an amount worth having, to a firm of solicitors on the floor below. He had snuffed out his ambition, supposing him to have ever lighted it, 
and had settled down with his snuffers for the rest of his life under the dry vine and figure tree of P.J.T., who planted in 1747. Many accounts and account books, many files of correspondence and several strong boxes garnished Mr. Grugis's room. They can scarcely be represented as having lumbered it, so conscientious and precise was their orderly arrangement. The apprehension of dying suddenly and leaving one fact or one figure with any incompleteness or obscurity attaching to it would have stretched Mr. Grugis stone-dead any day. The largest fidelity to a trust was the lifeblood of the man. There are sorts of lifeblood that course more quickly, more gaily, more attractively, but there's no better sort in circulation. There was no luxury in his room. Even its comforts were limited to its being dry and warm, and having a snug...